Welcome to the very first of this year class on conversion. I think we taught through this maybe a couple years ago, but yeah, this is the first time I think in the last two, three years that we've actually gone through this class. So welcome. You've made it to week one. This is going to be a seven weeks uh, study over nine weeks because we have two kind of in the middle there over Christmas and uh, New Year's that we won't meet on a Sunday morning. But yeah, you've made it. It's just a bit of maybe preemptive work about what we're actually going to be talking about in this class. So we're talking about the doctrine of conversion. And something that Cole helpfully pointed out to me last week was, you know, we tend to use the word conversion or converted in a myriad of different ways. So just to maybe clear up some of that, we're not talking about, okay, really quick, are there any baseball fans in the room? Any Cubs fans in the room? Chicago Cubs? Not a single one. I'm the only one. Okay. So whenever, in 2016, when they won the World Series, there were a lot of converts, bandwagon fans. A lot of people are Baylor fans out of nowhere as of yesterday. So we're not talking about fans converting from a team or from a product to a different product. What we're actually going to be talking about is the work of God through the preaching of the gospel that enables those who are spiritually dead to repent of their sins and believe and trust in Christ. So in short, we're going to be talking about this idea of the new birth. You know, we see that in John chapter 3. We'll read from that uh, chapter momentarily. So if you want to begin turning there to John chapter 3, that's where we'll start. But just a bit of introduction. So Satan certainly attacks us in various ways, but if there's a single doctrine that Satan is perhaps most pleased to distort and confuse people on, it is certainly the doctrine of conversion. So this is the doctrine by which we come to understand how God and man are able to be reconciled to one another. So to lose the truthfulness or the reality of this doctrine would actually be to inoculate some, some who would even consider themselves to be believers, some churchgoers. It would be to inoculate them from the true gospel. So yeah, it pleases Satan greatly to give sinners this false assurance of salvation. So an assurance that's altogether different from that assurance that's offered in and through the gospel. So if you were to take a number of people, let's say they were walking around downtown Fayetteville during the farmer's market, and you were to ask them the question, how does someone get to heaven? You would certainly receive a slew of different answers. Some skeptics might just say, yeah, believing in God, believing in heaven, the afterlife, all of that is pretty, you know, archaic. It's immature even. It's ungrounded. It's irrational. Some might claim that God is all-loving and therefore all people on the last day will be with God in heaven. Maybe like universalist. You You might have others from different faith backgrounds who place their hope in their ability to keep the requirements of some ancient text other than the Bible. Or perhaps they even pray to a God that maybe sits on their shelf. You know, others would scarcely be willing to admit it, but perhaps they place their hope eternally even, in a political party or maybe in a social advance of some kind. However, I would argue that probably the largest percentage of people would actually answer the question something like this, that God will allow those into heaven whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, right? And that's kind of how our society works as a whole, is that you know, we work together for the mutual flourishing of the group. 
that this is what is right. It's what is expected of people. But it is of paramount importance that we do not conflate social expectations with the requirements of God in his kingdom. Only those who have been made alive in Christ through regeneration, according to the gospel, will be found in heaven on that day. Today we're going to be talking about exactly what it is that differentiates between those nice people, those people who are moral in their actions, who try to justify themselves by their actions, what differentiates that person from a new creation in Christ? What are the differences between those two? Hence the title that you'll see in your handout, New, Not Nice. That's what we're going for. Before we dive into our outline, um, let me begin by praying for us that God would help us to see um, the truths of his word as we look at it. Then we'll begin by reading John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for this time that you've given us to look more in depth at how it is that you create a people for yourself, create a people for your glory, that we're thankful for your kindness, your immeasurable grace that you've shown us in Christ. Pray that you would help us now as we look to your word for help. We look to it for understanding and for clarity concerning your desire to see sinners reconciled to you through your Son and by your Spirit. God, help us to leave today with hearts full of the joy of our salvation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And turn with me to John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and that you do not understand these things? So let's look at our first point. Is being nice, is moralism, is nice enough? If we take a look at verses 3, 5, and 7 from the passage that we just read, we quickly see that Jesus' answer to this question is an emphatic no. It's not enough to merely be knowledgeable, to merely be a moral, uh, an upright person. There is something else that is necessary to be in Christ. In other words, if you haven't been born again, then it doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter if your father or grandfather or great-grandfather was a pastor. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church camp every summer or if you give faithfully to your church's general budget. You know, it doesn't matter if you feed the hungry. 
doesn't matter how many contemporary Christian artists you listen to. It says, if you haven't been born again, says Jesus, then you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nonetheless, it's all too common for churches and individual Christians to declare this truth on paper, yet deny its truth in how they minister to others or how they teach their children and even how they evangelize their neighbors. So Michael Lawrence, the author of that little yellow nine marks book, Conversion, which is where much of, much of this material is coming from, um, he says this about our tendencies in this area. We say that regeneration makes us new creatures in Christ, but then we teach our children a moralism that atheists could duplicate. It's a great um, jab, I think, for anyone with children. We were young parents, and even noticing that in the way that we are, are dealing with our own child, whether, whether it's a sleepless night or you know, we, just, we look for good behavior more than we look for, I don't know how much of a change of heart a four-month-old can have, but anyway. So why then does being nice still seem so attractive to us? It seems pretty obvious that it's not enough from the text like this. Let's now consider the appeal of nice, that first sub-point under point one. So it's no stretch to say that, you know, throughout history, mankind has over and over again been tempted by various false gospels, whether it's idol worship, atheism, promises of prosperity or health, wealth, you know, even just political victory, and so on. However, perhaps no false gospel has had such a successful campaign against the health of the church than that of just moralism just trying to be a good person and to justify myself before God and man. Just moralism. So moralism is attractive because, after all, what's easier? Okay, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Try and be at church every Sunday. Or, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which of those naturally hit you as easier? More able to be managed, the, the physical tasks. Okay, don't lie. I can really try my hardest not to do that. Don't steal. Okay, I don't think I've stolen anything. Like, you know, don't lie, whatever. Those come across as easier, but actually, the Lord says all of them are necessary for righteousness. Once again, to quote Lawrence, being nice allows you the opportunity to commend yourself to others. That's one of the points of being trying to be moral, trying to justify yourself. It, says, it allows you to commend yourself to others and maybe even to God. We trick ourselves into thinking that we can actually commend ourselves to God by our good deeds. And it's just simply not the case. He is not impressed to the same degree that we are impressed with ourselves. Hmm. Another reason that being nice is appealing is because largely from the time that most of us were born, and perhaps um, even since some of our own children or grandchildren were born, there was and is this kind of catechizing our children into a moralism from the, from the time that they're babies. Parents are all about nice, well-behaved children. And don't hear me wrong. Like, it is a good thing for children to be well-behaved and to honor and obey their parents. Scripture commands that. However, we must understand that merely raising them right or whatever kind of variation of that phrase is not the same thing, 
is not a one-to-one correlation of raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, necessarily. There's certainly overlap there, but they're not a one-to-one correlation. So by the way that we parent our biological children and in the way that we seek to instruct uh, those other children that we have the opportunity to have influence um, with, we ought to always aim for preaching, teaching the gospel and praying for their conversion rather than merely just adjusting behavior, just for good behavior's sake. Because in that lies the danger of some 25 or 35-year-old person waking up one morning and realizing, okay, yeah, I went to church for 20 years, and I never missed a Sunday while I was in my parents' house, but I was also never converted. And now I'm having this crisis of, is it my parents' faith? Is it my faith? Am I just trying to justify myself by my works, or am I resting in the finished work of Christ? That's the issue. It's actually conversion that we're trying to accomplish, not that we can't accomplish it. So we want in our homes and in our churches wells whose waters spring up to eternal life, not tombs that are attractive to look at, but on the inside just hold dead men's bones. That's not what we're aiming for. We're not merely adjusting behavior. So yeah, after looking at a few of those reasons why we're naturally attracted to being nice, let's take a little bit of time to look at some of the underlying assumptions of moralism or being nice. So yeah, in this section, we're just going to work through three primary assumptions that are undergirding that kind of moralism. So the first would be there's just an optimistic view of human beings. There's an optimistic view of human beings. The second is that there's a domesticated view of God. And then the third was just our proneness to use religion as some kind of means to self-reform, right? So an optimistic view of man, domesticated view of God, and then religion as self-reform. So let's look at that first one, optimistic view of humans. So whenever we trust in our niceness to earn us favor with God, we are really just conveying that we believe that we have in ourselves the ability to be good without God. We think highly of ourselves in that way. We can do what God says we cannot do apart from him. We trick ourselves into thinking that. Sure, we know we're not perfect, but deep down there's this subtle belief that somehow we're just, we're good enough. We like ourselves enough. There's um, an SNL sketch from, I believe the early 90s with a guy named Stuart Smalley. It's called Daily Affirmation, I think is what it's called. And he turns and he looks at himself in the mirror. And at the end of every episode, he just says, you know, I can do whatever it is I'm setting out to do because I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And that's all he says. And he gives himself that daily affirmation every day. And we are so, like, that sounds silly to say now, but we do the same thing. We say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Hey, people seem to like me. Like, I'm affirmed by others, even in the church. So therefore, I must be good with God when God might have a different opinion. So our domesticated view of God is what we're going to look at next. So in our niceness, not only are we elevating the view of humans to those who are capable of moral excellence, we are also lowering or degrading God and making him into someone who is much more comfortable with our sin 
than he truly is. We tend to assume that God is equally as impressed with our best efforts as we are. That's just not the case. Anyone remember what our good deeds are like to God? Say it up. They're filthy rags. Yet we love to just present them as these works of art. <laughs> we'll present them to God proud, boasting. And he's kind of repulsed by them. Not kind of, he is repulsed by them. And lastly, as we see in the narrative, even with Nicodemus, we have a natural tendency to misinterpret the true task that Christ and Christianity is meant to accomplish. We can often look to Christ in our religion as a wonderful resource for us to use in our own efforts to reform or improve ourselves. So that old adage, you know, God helps those who help himself. You know, that works really well in like an ad campaign for a self-help book, but you'll never find it in the Bible because it's the antithesis of the Bible. You can't help yourself. That's the point. So yeah, we've looked at both the appeal and the assumptions of being nice. So now let's just consider a few ways that we can tend to act when we work from this mindset of moralism. So let's go to that point C, actions of nice. So, you know, typically preachers of false gospels don't go around saying, hey, I'm a false, I preach a false gospel. They don't announce it themselves. <laughs> right, right. They try and sell themselves like they're doing something different, right? But yeah, they often don't do that. So oftentimes, you know, in the same way, those who are living a life of works righteousness, you know, they don't typically go around proclaiming that their works or uh, proclaiming that they believe that their works are what's going to save them. You know, nonetheless, that is exactly what they're trusting in, whether they admit it or not. And we tend to do the same thing, sadly. Oftentimes, we can be blind to our own sinful tendencies. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons why the church is meant to be of great assistance to you, to have people help you see your sin so that you might remove it. So really quick, let's just maybe... Groups, small groups of two or three that are kind of around you. Let's take about two minutes or so and just turn to someone seated around you and discuss briefly for maybe two minutes. Maybe share some ways that maybe you've noticed, whether it's in your own heart or just in general, ways that um, we're shaped by moralism. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> it's kind of vague. Yeah, so just briefly discuss with your partner uh, ways that we tend to act in a moralistic way rather than people who are being shaped by the gospel. Does that make sense? All right, let's spend a couple minutes and then we'll come back and hear what you guys have talked about.
wrap up in about 30 seconds. All right. What did some of you guys have to say? Anyone want to share what they were talking about? Anyone? Bennett, what did your group talk about? You're welcome. So even God's grace is now dependent upon my works. It's no longer just a gift. It's, it's also dependent. That's good. Anyone else? Sir? Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, fear of man. Anything else? Maybe one or two more. So like he who's been, like been forgiven much, like therefore wants to forgive. We just don't do that naturally. We just don't want to do that. Mm. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, let's let's maybe consider a couple more examples while we're kind of in this frame of considering moralism versus people being shaped by the gospel. You know, we all keep we keep all examples of our weaknesses and maybe our sin struggles. We'll like to keep those very private. And then the, what do we do whenever we have a slight success? Anyone who's willing to listen, come, come all of you in here about this great thing that I've done. You know, that's something we, lo- we just love to justify ourselves by our works. Or perhaps even, maybe even considering our evangelism. You know, perhaps we've been guilty of proclaiming Christ in, attempting, in a way like that we're attempting to sell him to someone. And that's something that we'll actually talk about in future weeks of this class. But yet we'll, we'll sell Christ as a means to make someone's life easier. Make someone's life better. And the clear danger of that is, you know, what happens when someone buys a product and it doesn't live up to the product's promise? Just take it back. Get a refund. Try something else. And so that's, that's another danger that we face. Let's now consider an example of this niceness, just even from the scriptures. So I'm going to read from Luke 18, 9 to 14. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to, but I'll read it for us. 
So yeah, this is Luke 18, 9 to 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It reads this way. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What a setup. (laughs) Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, this parable helps us to see clearly the blindness that we can have to the things that truly please God. It can be so easy to conflate pious living with a truly broken and contrite heart. It's our natural condition to attempt to justify ourselves. Just remember that opening verse. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And the whole purpose of that parable was saying, you're not righteous and you shouldn't trust in yourself. Friends, it is of utmost importance that you do not look to your own righteousness, your own piety, your own strivings to be pure, your own generosity, whatever that may be, to gauge whether or not you are right with God. That's a bad metric to use. You must only look to Christ, repent of your sins, and believe in him. And he promises that he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to credit you with his righteousness. That's how a person becomes a new creation in Christ, not by their works, but by God who extends grace. So now that we've come to understand that merely being nice or morally upstanding is utterly insufficient to gain right standing with God, let's now turn to take a look at why regeneration, conversion, the new birth, is necessary in our second point, the necessity of new. Since we in our natural state are spiritually dead, We don't merely need a helping hand from God in saving us, but rather we need him to do it all. Begin with our first point, our inability, point A. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we see our spiritual state before Christ described very clearly, very succinctly, when it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So let's paint the picture here. Before Christ you were not merely on the brink of death. You were not floating around on your life raft, adrift in the ocean. When all of a sudden an ocean liner sailed by, they threw you a life preserver on a rope and the two of you worked together to synergistically pull yourselves toward one another. No, friends, the Bible makes the reality very clear that before Christ, we were dead. Bottom of the sea, Ocean water had long since filled our lungs. No hope. 
of ever being alive again. So have you ever watched a treasure hunting movie? Whether it be Indiana Jones, The Goonies, National Treasure for some of my generation. I don't know. There's always that one scene where they're going down deep into the mountain or deep into the cave or the scary building or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, in jump scare fashion, there's going to be the skeleton of the guy who tried to go before, who didn't make it, who's still there. Interestingly, they never grab that guy's hand, that skeleton's hand, and say, come on, guy, like, we got to go. We got to get out of here. There's a rock that's falling from the sky. It's going to hit us and crush us, whatever the threat is. I don't know. They never do that. Why? There's an understood hopelessness about that guy's situation. There's still hope for Indiana Jones running out of the temple. But for the skeleton back there, there's really no hope in trying to save this guy. He can't do anything. His case is settled. We are spiritually and un. Sorry, spiritually unable and unwilling to please God. We cannot do it on our own. And no one can help us do it except for Christ. So consider even our passage again from earlier, John chapter 3, verse 6 says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, attempting to accomplish a spiritual end with the tools of the flesh is just a work in futility. Attempting to accomplish a spiritual end with the tools of the flesh is a work in futility. John chapter 6, verse 63 even clarifies that when it says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's concerning the extent of our inability to do that which pleases God without the Spirit's help. Michael Lawrence from this book again states, even when we do the right thing morally, we do it for the wrong reasons, to justify ourselves and to bring ourselves glory. Indeed, as Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 tells us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. To attempt to convince God that we are worthy of eternal life by our, by our own works is, again, an exercise in futility. So let's move now to consider how God's holiness is another reason why, in order to be reconciled to God, we must be made new in Christ. God's holiness. If you'll remember with me that glorious text found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah's in the throne room, the angels declaring that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Friends, the seraphim are declaring to the superlative degree this attribute of God, his holiness. We're meant to see that God is altogether different or set apart from us in regards to his holiness. And that because of this, sin cannot even be found in his presence lest it corrupt his perfection. This is part of what it means to be holy, to be without and completely apart from the stain of sin. So with those, that perfect storm of both our inability to love God 
and his inability to have sin in his presence. Are we just we must just be consigned to despair, right? I'm full of sin. He can have no sin in his presence. What's got to happen? Friends, this is where if you're in Christ, you ought to be able to look forward to the truthfulness of the gospel and be filled up with the joy of the knowledge that Jesus Christ has made a sacrifice for sinners that was effective for you in reconciling that debt, clearing the slate. It reconciled you to God and it was all of grace. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't understand yourself to be a Christian, yet you're feeling the weight of that sin and you're seeing the holiness of God and how those two can't intermingle. Friends, just hold tight until this next section where we talk about God's grace. So let's turn now to consider the marvelous answer to that riddle of how our sins, though they are many, can be forgiven and how God's holiness can be upheld as we look at God's grace in salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's turn to point C, God's grace. Yes, friends, there is good news for sinners who recognize their need. God, in his great love toward us, has actually taken the initiative in providing for us a way for our sins to be wiped away while maintaining his holiness. God, he's accomplished this by sending us his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, completely free from any sin, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins, thus satisfying the wrath of God and raising up from the grave, vindicating his victory over death and foreshadowing our own resurrection in him. Praise God. But how, you might be thinking, does God regenerate people in the light of this truth today? Turn with me again, if you would, to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's turn there together. These verses read, you might have them memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not our works, and we can't boast in it. Saved by grace. This is one of the most comforting and humbling things that we're meant to understand about the nature of our conversion, that God chose to impart his gift of grace to you. That is a sweet sentence. God chose, out of his own volition, his own free will, to impart his gift of grace to you. There is no question that we were undeserving of this grace. This is what makes it so incredibly surprising and joyous to hear. By definition, grace is a gift. It is not something that can be demanded or that is owed. Therefore, since you did nothing to earn this grace, there is nothing, therefore, that you can do to lose or unearn it. It should be a great comfort to our souls because we know that our, our hearts have this tendency to forget the finishedness of this work of Christ, that it's actually accomplished. When he said it is finished on the cross, he wasn't 
saying, okay, it's finished for today, but tomorrow it's got to be, you know, got to do this thing again. And he's saying it's finished. Yesterday, today, forever, it's done. Friends, we take great comfort in that. So we say, by grace, through faith. So not only is the grace that saves us a free gift of God, so is the gift of faith that functions as the instrument through which that grace saves. Hear me out. This does not mean that we look at our faith and depending upon how full of faith, even like Bennett, like you guys were talking about, how well I'm acting from day to day, that determines how much God loves me. That's not it. You know, we're not supposed to look at how full of faith we are and determine whether or not we're still saved. But this is the beauty of being saved by grace alone through faith alone. Grace is the thing that saves and faith is the instrument God uses to show his grace and to keep us in his grace. And best of all, God willingly and joyfully provides both of, this, of, both of these to us in full measure so that he receives all the glory, all the honor, all the praise for that work. We say, by grace, through faith, and it's not our own doing. It's not a result of our works, so that we might not boast. Both grace and faith are provided by God to secure our union with him. Therefore, it is so important that we are always mindful of refusing any opportunity to take credit for the righteousness that might be within us. We can't take credit for it. God did it all. H.B. Charles Jr. once told the story of a young man who was explaining his conversion to the elders of one of his churches, one of his, or of his church, rather, sorry. The young man, as he was explaining his conversion, simply said, I did my part and God did his part. And the elder heard that and kind of thought, I think he might be misunderstanding what actually happened here. Like, so he asked the young man, please elaborate. And the young man just simply said, I did all of the sinning and God did all of the saving. He wasn't meaning to be synergistic. He was just being honest about what had actually happened. Who contributed what to my salvation? We did all the sinning. Christ did all the saving. This is the reality of the grace with which Christ has saved us. He's done it in such a way that he receives all the glory and we receive all the benefits of his great gift. Therefore, we should, we should never boast in our own works, but we should always continually boast in the works of Christ, our Savior. So in being the primary actor in the salvation of his people, by granting both the grace that saves and the faith that trusts that saving grace, God has now given us total confidence in our position before him. Because the one who cannot fail and the one who cannot lie, has in himself accomplished the work of salvation for us. And there are certainly human responsibilities in regards to our continual repentance and trust and belief, keeping ourselves in the faith. But all of the necessary faith is also provided by God for his people. He will not let those who are truly converted, who are truly born again, fall away. Friends, that is blessed assurance. Let's look now to point D, God's spirit. 
We've looked at why we've needed to be saved and how God has saved us. Now let's consider the person that saved us. This person is a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. While the ministry of the Spirit is vast, when it comes to regeneration, there are a couple main functions that are necessary for us to understand in regards to his work and salvation. So number one, he takes up residence in us. That's how we are understanding ourselves to be saved, is that we are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We're meant to see here that true conversion results in a continuing in the faith because the Spirit has not just visited you once to grant grace to you, but actually resides in your heart and causes continual change and growth to occur. That's the ministry of the Spirit in you. This is seen, what I just said is actually seen and pictured out in the second function that I'll note, which is that He produces fruit in us. The Spirit produces his fruit in us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 state that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and that against such things there is no law. Friends, the fruit of the Spirit belong in increasing amounts to those who have been genuinely converted from spiritual death to spiritual life, and they are inextricably linked to the one who gives them, the Holy Spirit. So praise God that in the same way he provides saving grace and faith to receive that grace, he also provides the ministry of the Spirit to be with us, teaching us, instructing us on how to become more like Christ as we walk in faithfulness to him. Friends, we're going to move now to our third point, which is basically just some implications of all that we've been talking about this morning thus far. So to end our time, I'd just like to offer up a few considerations for you to take with you and meditate on throughout this coming week. Um, so yeah, let's just begin with that first sub-point, just some implications for Christians. So if you're a Christian, what are some things that your conversion ought to produce in you? Number one, you should just expect to grow in your affection for Christ. You should expect to grow in your affection for Christ. Someone who's been greatly and magnificently saved by Christ will naturally have great affection for Christ. Not perfect affection. Not affection that doesn't ebb and flow from day to day. But growing. Another thing, and this is important to remember, don't expect that just because you've been truly converted and that you're a new creation in Christ, don't expect that you will magically stop sinning. Instead, expect to notice a new and abiding hatred for your sin. That's what you ought to be looking for. We still live in a fallen world. Our natures are still corrupted by sin. But those who are truly regenerate, truly born in, of Christ, in union with Christ, now have a newfound hatred for their sin. You can look at Romans 7 for encouragement there. Next, 
You should always be quick to remind yourself of the finished nature of Christ's work for you. Not the almost finished work, but the finished, the completed work of Christ in you. I think another helpful thing to do even this week is just ask other members of UBC to meet with you and to help you see your sin, to help you kill it. Think of James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's part of the how we understand the church to be helpful in our sanctification is that we confess our sins one to another and we help each other. Here's something that might even seem, I don't know if it's counter-cultural. I mean, it's certainly counter-cultural. So celebrate when someone repents of their sin, not merely when someone is always seeming to act very morally. Does that make sense? So whenever a brother or sister comes to you and says, I'm really struggling with this. I need help. Can you help me? That is something to truly be celebrated because it shows that, okay, they have a hatred for their sin. They want their sin to be gone from their life. Celebrate that more than you just celebrate, man, this brother is awesome. Like, he never, like, man, his life is perfect. They're always just crushing it. And maybe they are. But healthy repentance is something to be cherished and something to be applauded. Maybe lastly, for the Christian, evangelize those around you. So a desire to share with others the grace that you've been shown is actually a sign that you have truly been shown grace. Move to that second point for churches. So we've spent all morning hopefully being reminded and convinced afresh of the centrality of conversion in the life of Christians. So what implications are there for the church, the gathered corporate body of believers? Here's just a thing that a few things that UBC practices. Something that we can look at and say, wow, I'm glad that our church does these things. I'm sorry, I'm getting my ear cut off here. Okay, we're good. Yeah. Even like look at our, our membership practices. We have meaningful membership practices here. So for example, by the way that we conduct our interviews, you're really trying to be diligent in making sure that only those who are truly converted become members of this church. And that isn't to say that we only want Christians in our service. We certainly want non-Christians in our service. However, we only want to extend affirmation of true conversion to those who bear the fruit of a genuine believer. This is actually loving to those who are non-believers as well. Next, we know that we are connected to membership. Uh, connected to membership, we practice church discipline. You know, once again, this practice can seem fairly unloving at first glance. However, if you look at the heart of why we do it, you see the love that serves as its foundation. The love for true conversion of sinners and the love for the holiness of God's name. I think lastly, just one thing for us to consider is how and why we keep membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper tied together. Why they all fit together. These are not three solo activities that the church does for completely unrelated reasons. 
Leah. Once again, to quote Lawrence from his book, he says, these are three different angles on the same reality of regeneration. The criteria for all three are the same. Not merely being nice, but repentance and faith. So in other words, yet to rightly participate in each of these presupposes that one is truly converted by the grace of God. Friends, just as a final encouragement and exhortation, as we leave this place, let's just always be mindful of the fact that God has done all of the work for us. Let's not to abdicate our responsibility in continuing to repent, continuing to gather together, continuing to live increasingly holy lives. But it is to say that whenever I mess up, whenever I don't live up to the potential that maybe I've set for myself or others have set for myself, I can lean back and there's going to be a foundation, a, a rest behind me. And that's just the finished work of Christ, that he has saved us by grace through faith. And it's not our own doing. So therefore, I can't boast in anything that I do, but I can boast fully in what Christ has done for me. I think we have some time remaining. Are there any questions? What questions do you guys have this morning? I'd love to answer a few. So how to approach family members or close friends who might be converted, but we're not sure, right? They don't necessarily show any of the fruit that might come with true conversion. Hmm. That's a great question. I'm going to think on it for just a minute before I answer think one of the ways that we relate to them is certainly the same way that we relate to any person that we understand to not be regenerate, and that is with grace, and that is yeah, just never assuming, even with members of, I mean, hopefully with members of this church, we understand like with our membership practices that we've gone through a lot of the heavy lifting of, you know, making sure that okay, yeah, they understand the gospel. They're showing the fruit of repentance. They're showing the fruit of the Spirit. You know, but there are even other churches that I've been a part of in my life or you know, wherever that you can't even assume that the members of the church are Christians necessarily. So I think one just helpful way would be to, yeah, always have the words of the true gospel on your lips. Just be willing to say, or just to have a, a conversation about topics like conversion or regeneration with them, say like, so how do you understand that you became a Christian? Like just starting conversations like that and have them just spell out, okay, yeah, I think I was converted, whether, okay, I was seven years old or I was 15 years old, whatever. I think having those initial conversations can just 
be really illuminating to what's actually there. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add to that, brother? Great question, though. Any other questions? Melody. Help me summarize what you just said. Someone want to help me summarize? I'm just trying to repeat so anyone who listens to this later can also be edified by what Melody had to say. About how celebrating repentance, like we were reminded of the prodigal son, and how even the one who stayed back wasn't necessarily celebrated, but the one who sinned much and came back and repented was celebrated. It's encouraging. Think, so the question was, how significant is the point, the very like the moment of conversion? The you know some people will have, you know some people might say if you can't look back and and say the day that you were converted, then I'm not really sure if you're a Christian. I would disagree with that. Um, however, I do think that there is a specific moment that the Holy Spirit changes someone. There is a moment of conversion. It's just our interpretation of that moment, I think, can be blurred. I think there are some people who were saved legitimately when they were five years old. And then they look back and it's like, I don't remember the exact day or time. It was just that I had faithful parents who shared the gospel with me on a weekly basis. And I don't ever remember a time that I wasn't saved. No. But there was certainly a time when the Holy Spirit did the work. Um, so, yeah. And that is something that we'll talk about, I think, um, Next week, actually. So our, our next lesson will be, uh, the title will be Saved, Not Sincere. So that question of like, how sincere is sincere enough? You know, of whenever it's like an evangelistic call and it says like, okay, come down and be saved. Like, come down and receive Christ. And then we go down at like a camp setting or like an evangelistic meeting setting. And then two weeks after we make our decision for Christ, we start to feel, was I sincere enough? Because... I left that meeting and I'm still sinning and I still feel guilt and I still, so, yeah. I think there is a, a very real specific point of conversion 
However, our we can be cloudy about when that is. And it could be that, you know, sometimes like we'll grow up saying, yeah, I was converted at this point. And then like we actually start to think about it and it's like, maybe I was converted before then because I showed fruits of repentance before then. So, yeah. I would not put my trust that I am converted in a decision that I made on a specific date when I was in high school as much as I would put my faith that I'm converted in the fact that 15 years from now, 20 years from now, I'm going to be able to look and say, I'm still repenting. The Lord is still sweet to me. He's still kind to me. Therefore, I trust that he did the work. Right? That's encouragement. Anything else? Maybe one more? Because if not, that's okay. I'll pray for us. God, we give you thanks for the fact that you and your great kindness toward us have extended new life to us through Christ. Thank you for the fact that though we sin and we did not love you, God, that you had great love for us, even while we were still sinners. God, we pray that we would trust in you in the finished work of the cross of Christ. We would come to love one another and love you increasingly. I thank you for the reality of our new birth into Christ. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, guys. See you next week.